Imagine a living being that produces the highest quality fat and protein nine out of 10 years, starting about year six to eight, and continues to do so decade upon decade, century after century, all while requiring no fertilizer, but sunshine, carbon dioxide, and rainfall, while making oxygen, filtering rainfall, building topsoil, providing habitat and food for countless insects and mammals, while casting a dappled shade across a yard on which 10 successive generations of children played while the golden leaves swirl down upon them in lengthening light and fleeting warm autumn breeze. Now imagine a landscape filled with these beings as far as the eye can see over every crest, blanketing every floodplain and in each ravine shrouding every hilltop. White oak, red oak, hickory joining the walnut along with chestnut reaching 120 feet in height and eight feet in diameter, an overstory 90 feet above sugar maples. Mulberry, apple, pear, persimmon and plum and scores more each offering up a bounty of produce in their own season after a spring of heavenly nectar. For anyone that's interested, that's a quote from Ben Falk, author of The Resilient Farm and Homestead. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Forest Garden Podcast. This episode, we're going to be talking about nut trees, how to grow them, the differences between the various species, where to grow them, and just some tips and tricks and interesting facts about uh, all things nuts. There'll probably be a lot of puns made, uh, which I apologize for in advance, but uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm very excited today because as our listeners may not be aware, Ben is in a master's program at the University of Missouri agroforestry program and his, you know, like thesis work, I guess, based on black walnut. So he's kind of a he's kind of a nerd in the nut tree realm that surpasses my own knowledge. So today our episode is going to focus on a lot of Ben's really <laughs> in-depth knowledge on the topic and a lot of my wanting to know more about the topic and some of the the trees that I'm most interested in cultivating or maybe I am looking forward to taking over the stewardship of but haven't you know, uh, let's just let's just say that Ben really knows what he's talking about here. Well, sometimes, and I'll I'll be honest when I don't know or I'm just speculating. But there's a few things like um, black walnut, like you mentioned, is my my thesis right now. So pretty much writing and researching that tree every single day. So I'm definitely uh, I'd say I'm knowledgeable in that area and sort of knowledgeable in the others. But uh, I'm just looking forward to having a conversation because they're kind of exciting to talk about. And I think in the whole permaculture and forest gardening world, the homesteading world, some people talk about them and know about them. But I know for me, I kind of avoided the subject for a long time. Like I was into fruit, I was into vegetables and just things I could easily grow in my garden. And the idea of trying to go, trying to grow a nut tree, which, you know, might take, you know, many years to start bearing. Uh, they tend to be, you know, expensive if you want to buy like bigger trees, they, they can be expensive. And then also some of them require, you know, a lot of processing to, you know, haul them and shell them. Uh, and so it just seemed like, you know, a lot of work and it was a little bit less interesting to me, but, I, but there was definitely something about, about it that was, uh, I knew that eventually I'd have to learn because they're, they're powerful. I mean, some of these trees can grow, you know, over a hundred feet tall and live hundreds of years and they produce, you know, staggering amounts of, of protein and fat and calories and the things that, you know, we just can't get from 
our garden very easily, like, you know, a, a typical garden or even like a, a fruit-based food forest. It's like, yeah, it's nice to have fruit and it's great for us. And they're, they're, they taste great. But in terms of actually providing for yourself and your community, there's something about, I mean, nutritionally, a gram of fat has more calories, more than double the amount of calories in a gram of carbohydrates or a gram of protein. So, you know, gram for gram, for gram you're getting, you know, a lot more energy. You're harvesting a lot more energy from the sun through photosynthesis and storing it into a food, a food source that can be stored. That's the other thing. These, most of the, some of the nuts we'll talk about can store for, for a long period of time if done correctly. And, you know, it's also just nice to have big, beautiful hardwood trees in your landscape. And in some cases you might not be able to be planting these trees for those of you who are renting, or you don't think you're going to be in your location for, you know, longer than, you know, six or seven years, it might not be worth it. Hey, you should still plant nut trees anyway, for whoever moves in later or for your, your kids or something like that. Yeah. There's definitely the time component to it, but there's just, you know, there's so many reasons to, to be growing them and I think they're fascinating. So uh, I'm ready to just. Let's dive in. I was going to say that if you were to describe to someone the first time, like the importance of nut trees, the thing that people overlook most often is how they can be a staple crop. The things that people get into first in permaculture or when, you know, deciding that their backyard should be looking a little bit more diverse, they get into ki hardy kiwi or fruit trees, but those things really aren't great sources of, of protein. They're more sources of like vitamin C and other, other things that we need. So one th a book that I was reading somewhat recently was Will Bonsell's uh, Guide to Self-Reliant Gardening or uh, Extreme Self-Reliance, I forgot the title. And in that, he, he kind of separates the crops into two separate parts where he talks about nut trees and then he talks about fruits in his like quote-unquote permacrops section. And it's funny to, to sort of talk about how it is nut trees are like the last thing that, it is the thing that people are most afraid of in the beginning. And then after a year or so of being really invested, realize like, wow, I should have planted that a year ago. Right. And yeah, th that's a good way of putting it as being a staple crop. I mean, you, know, you could, some of these trees, I mean, I don't know if I'd want to live on a diet strictly of black walnuts and chestnuts, but I mean, it could sustain you for, for many days on end. Um, but, you know, just eating, you know, plums and, and, broccoli, uh, probably wouldn't be as satiating. So there's something, you know, <laughs> powerful about big trees that produce, produce staple crops. Yeah. And they're going to outlive you, which is very important. As you said, I mean, plant, if you plant a hardy pecan tree in your landscape or two or three hardy pecan trees, you might not get pecans for eight to 10 years, mm -hmm. which is part of the fact I realized that like, you know, people are usually turned off by nut trees as it does take a while for them to fruit, usually depending on the species, but you do have to kind of think about providing food for your grandchildren. And that's something that as people who are aware of how the world is changing so quickly, planting a tree that isn't going to provide food for you, but is going to provide food for, for like later generations is probably the most selfless thing you can do. <laughs> uh, especially if you're like keeping track of it and making sure that it is alive and well and healthy while you're its caretaker. 
right before right before my grandfather had uh one the severe stroke that sort of zapped his memory and took away you know kind of put him down the path of dementia the one of the last things he did was planted a, a hardy pecan tree and my family didn't even dis- i was the one who discovered it, it and it was only you know this past year so it's just crazy to think that he was planting hardy pecans i don't know 10 or 15 years ago and no one even knew about it he's thinking ahead plan- planting it for the future yeah it's something that I feel like we should take more into account is that idea of like stewardship in it. And if you plant a nut tree, it is going to live long enough to provide food for generations. Yeah, very true. And I'll add to that though, for, for some people who, you know, might like that sentiment, but are also impatient like I am and want, want to harvest and eat some of these foods. Now, thankfully a lot of, depending on where you live, if you live in the, you know, Midwest US or the Northeast or the Southeast, there's a lot of just wild nut trees that you could be foraging for that I think are sort of underappreciated. I don't know how far we'll go down the rat into the rabbit hole of, you know, some of the even more wild nut trees like, uh, like hickories and, and acorns, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely, you know, briefly discuss them, but, you know, chestnuts and walnuts and pecans and even uh, hazelnuts. I mean, those are all things you could just find while you're hiking. I've found while I was hiking and I've definitely like just kind of stepped over them before thinking like it was too much work to, to gather them and process them, but no longer, I I definitely see the value. I think maybe we'll just start with the one that I'm most familiar with and could talk forever about, which is, which is black walnut. I don't really have a sort of an outline of exactly all the points that I want to say. So I might just sort of talk about why I think it's interesting the, the kind of transition from indifference, I was sort of ignoring it purposefully because I thought it was too much, too much of a hassle for most, most of my gardening life. But now that's totally done a 180 because now it's all I work with for the most part. So black walnut, eastern black walnut, uh, Juglans nigra is a native tree to the, to the Midwest. And it's sort of naturalized to many other places around the U.S. and actually around the world as well. And it's a very uh, popular hardwood tree for timber plantations. It has a you know, beautiful dark wood that's used for timber, like log production, or also for veneer. It's very, very valuable um, and it commands a high price. But you know, what I'm more interested in, of course, is the, the food value for these trees. Unfortunately, there hasn't really been a lot of you know, breeding work done until recently uh, to make the, the nuts of these trees comparable to what we're familiar with. So most people are familiar with Juglans uh, regia, which is Persian walnut and other types of uh, Carpathian walnuts. And the main difference of with those is that, you know, they've undergone a lot of domestication over the years, a lot of breeding and selection, you know, originally from, from Persia. So Many, many more generations of selection have made nuts that are have a thin shell that crack open easily. Like you think of these holiday nut baskets where you can just take the walnut with that little bronze nutcracker that everyone has, and you can do it fairly easily. They pop open. There's a really nice big kernel inside, and you know you don't really think too much of it. But you know, it's very likely that the wild version of that species was much harder to crack into and had a much smaller kernel. So that's kind of what we're dealing with with black walnut, it's a, um, the wild types that you might see, they look like big, 
um, like kind of lime yellowish green balls on the side of the road as you're driving. You might see those in the fall uh, or hanging from trees. If you don't know how to identify them, they're pretty distinctive. But once you get the hull off of the black walnut that you have the shell and you know, there's a lot of shell and not that much kernel in the wild types, but honestly, you know, even, even the wild types are worth, worth checking out because like we were talking about, they're still going to be exceedingly productive and they're basically free, high quality protein and fat. They're actually out of all the nuts in the world that I'm aware of black walnut has the most protein uh, per gram. So if, especially if you're foraging for these things or, or just sort of gathering them as you're, you're driving around spotting them, it's like, it's, it's worth it to fill up. Uh, but yeah, so maybe I'll get back on track to the tree species. It's a really large tree at maturity, but it will start bearing even before 10 years of age, sometimes six to eight years. That's kind of like the average. I would recommend purchasing an improved cultivar or grafted cultivar or seedlings from grafted cultivars. Uh, shout out to the, the research center that I work at in Missouri that people can contact. It's called HARC, so Horticultural and Agroforestry Research Center at the University of Missouri. And in the winter and late fall, you can actually get, uh, you can purchase scion from some of the cultivars. And like I said, the reason is because if you're going to go through the trouble of growing you know, a nut tree and you're waiting six to eight years to see the first nut, you want to make sure that it's, you know, good quality. Like it's got a lot of meat to it and it's going to be less work to process. So some of the, you know, the selections that have been known to have good nut quality can have double to triple the amount of kernel that a wild type would. So I would definitely recommend getting uh, grafted improved cultivars or seedlings thereof. You could also plant the seeds themselves you can purchase you can purchase those from suppliers or or you can you can find them and gather them yourself from trees that are known to have good nuts but you just have to watch out the germination rate is not wonderful with uh with black walnuts surprisingly i don't know if it might just be a climatic thing but of course you need to stratify them like many uh tree species where you're exposing them to cold you could let nature do its thing and just leave them out outdoors and stratify them that way so that they'll germinate in the spring and there are other tips and tricks to, to improve germination, like gibberellic acid soaks will uh, improve germination rates quite a bit, but that's going to be your cheapest route. If you're, if you're trying to do the budget version is, is just get, just get seeds and from, from improved cultivars and, and plant them yourself. Now, once you do have a tree uh, that's growing and producing, or you've gone out and foraged for, for black walnuts. Uh, you usually are harvesting in September to October, early October is kind of the cutoff, maybe early September to early October. If you're harvesting off the tree, you want to make sure that the, the fruit, because you know, you know, all, all nuts have a, some sort of a fruit around them. So uh, it's that green casing that eventually turns black. Uh, you want to make sure that that's soft before you pull them off the tree, because if you do it before that, the nut itself is not going to be as ripe. And it's gonna be a lot harder to get the hull, again, the green fruit off of the, off of the nut. If you, if you get it right, if you, if you get the timing, right, the nut will be better quality and it'll be easier to get the hull off. And in some cases, there's a lot of variety with black walnut, but in some cases you can just, once it's ripe, you can just use your boot and kind of scrape off the, the hull fairly easily. 
And if you're doing large amounts of them, there are some do-it-yourself guides online where I've seen some people where they take a 55-gallon drum and I think maybe they put some water in there and some black walnuts you know, in their hull and they take a drill with some sort of, you have to look at the video, but it's almost like a big mixer, like a paint mixer device. And just, you know, it rips into the, the hulls and scrapes them clean. Uh, and then they also make, you know, equipment that's dedicated for hulling black walnut, which works really well. So that's, that's the main processing part of, you know, the harvest of, of black walnuts. And of course, you know, you're going to need to shell them. Do you want to eat them now? But hey, if you're going to try to store these for throughout the winter or as just sort of like emergency food or however you're growing black walnuts, just let them dry, like hull them, dry them out for a couple of weeks and store them in a kind of airtight, light proof box. And they'll, and they'll last a long time. I've got some in my basement from 2019 and I, I haven't tried one in a while, but they're still pretty good from the 2019 growing season. I was going to ask, you don't need to like some people section off a whole area of their basement to create the right humidity to store fruits and vegetables long-term. You don't, you don't need to do anything special for, for storing them after they're hauled. Yeah. As long as they're dried down, they'll last, last quite a long time. And there may be some, some ideal humidity requirements that I'm not aware of, but you know, they're, they're not going to be as, as fresh and maybe they won't have as nice of a taste or texture after a few years, but they'll, as long as they're kept in their shell, uh, I believe they'll still, still last, you know, years. Could you also kind of describe to someone who maybe is less familiar exactly what hauling is or what it means? I know that you talked about this a bit earlier, but maybe we can do a bit of a deeper dive. Yeah. So that green fruit that surrounds the shell can be maybe about a half inch thick. It turns from green to brown in the fall. Some of them turn ripen earlier, some of them ripen later, but eventually you're going to need to remove that. And in nature, this would happen naturally, right? Like the nuts will fall with the hull or the fruit around them. And then the hull will decay and basically help the, the seed germinate. But, you know, for our purposes and also for storage, you don't really want there to be this sort of like moist, like nutrient rich package around the, around the nut while it's being stored, of course. So you're going to need to remove that. And so, like I said, you could remove it manually just with, you know, your boot or a knife or however you want to do it. It won't, it's not even that hard if the, if the nut is truly ripe, it will kind of just slough off, but you cannot, there are also those uh, mechanized methods to remove the hull. Like, like I mentioned. So uh, before you go on, the only other question that occurred to me was in planting black walnut, which is a juglans or juglans. I don't know how to pronounce it. Juglans. I say juglans, but I don't, I don't think there's a right way. Right. Juglans, juglans. However, in planting black walnut, does it cross pollinate with other juglans species like the Carpathian walnuts or other walnuts? Yes. Yeah. If you have them around, they will, they will cross pollinate. If there's, there's some differences in flowering time between, well, between the species, but also within the species, there's a lot of variation in, because they're, 
both species are heterodicogamous, which is a kind of a mouthful, but basically just means that you have male flowers and you have uh, female flowers that come out separately at different times. And some trees have shed their pollen before the female flowers become receptive. And then in other trees, they're reversed. So all that being said, yes, they will cross pollinate, but they have to like time-wise sync up, you know? And so you have to have the, uh, the right cultivars. Um, and we don't really know like, you know, all of the, the different timings for every single cultivar out there. I know at least here in Missouri, there are so many black walnut trees. I'm looking at one right outside my window right now. In the springtime, there's just so much pollen in the air that if there are any juglans flowers that are receptive, be it nigra or regia or you know, whatever, there will be some black walnut pollen that can reach those flowers. So yeah, if they're if they're nearby and their flowering time sync are, are syncing up, you can get hybrids. And yeah, we have some hybrids at the research farm that I work at. And both, some of them may have been just natural hybrids, but I think most of them were specifically cross-pollinated to uh, to be hybrid. Are there any offerings from the research center, which I guess we should probably reiterate to anyone listening, have to contact them or whatever or the best time of year. But are there any are there any standouts that you would re- recommend requesting Scion of? I, I mean, personally, I've only ever, there's, there's a few places in the U S where you can request seed and scion and that kind of stuff. And they're almost always universities and they always sell out real quick. So I feel like we should, you know, give people the lowdown. Yeah, definitely. So there's a collection at the uh, horticultural agroforestry research center, the center for agroforestry. You know, we have a pretty big collection. Um, there are original cultivars that have that have names to them that were collected. They probably all have kind of interesting stories, you know, grew in someone's backyard and they found that the nuts were amazing. So they got it to the local extension office and they reported it to, to university of Missouri. And someone got out, um, gave it a fun name and brought it back to our collection 30, 40 years ago, what, you know, whenever it happened. So there's you know, all these named cultivars that I can definitely recommend. And then there's also, crosses that have happened through the breeding program that have generated even better types, but those aren't available yet for kind of individuals to, to get scion from. If there are opportunities for growers, people who have acreage that they're willing to devote to these improved cultivars. And if that's the case, you can totally get in contact with the center and uh, let people know you're interested in getting some of this, uh, the new selections of, of black walnuts to grow out. But if you're someone who just wants to you know, plant some for your backyard. As far as the nut quality goes, that's kind of the focus of the program. Like which ones produce the best, you know, most full plump kernels. Cause that's what we're all looking for. And like thin shells that are easy to manage. There's a cultivar called Emma K, which is really great. Like we do a lot of crossing with Emma K because it's just such a, a good standout nut. There is Sparks 127. It's another really big uh, high kernel percentage nuts. That's a beautiful tree. Sparrow is kind of the m- tr- most tried and true. It's the classic black walnut that we have in our collection, probably more than anything else. And it's kind of middle of the road, right? It's very adaptable. It's it's tough. It produces a lot, but it's, the nuts are good. They're a little bit smaller than the other two that I mentioned, but they're, it's still a great tree. And there's a reason why we have so much of it. There's a, a lot to choose from. Those are probably the ones that 
that come to mind most. Yeah. Emma K sparks one, two, seven and Sparrow. But yeah, like I said, there'll be some new cultivars. I, I don't know exactly when people are going to be listening to this, but definitely check in with the center of agroforestry to see if those new cultivars, which they don't even have a name yet. They're just right now, they just have, you know, codes assigned to them, which produce not only have really high kernel percentage, but also produce a lot of nuts early in their life. So, you know, you can make it worth as a grower, you can make it worth your while. And also it's good for just, you know, hobbyist growers too, because, you know, all things being considered, it's nice to only have to wait six years or seven years instead of 10 years for your first big crop of nuts. And in terms of protein, everybody who is a you know hobbyist gardener, casual gardener, forest gardener, you know, we can do with a lot more healthy proteins and uh, nuts in our diet, I imagine. Definitely. Yeah. And as far as taste goes, have, have you had black walnuts before? Like, no, it? I haven't. You, you know, you're the black walnut master and I'm just sitting here thinking like, man, I got to visit or something. That's part of why I feel so weird about nut trees is that it is sort of like the last frontier of permaculture that I got interested in. Yeah. And now I'm kicking myself for not getting into it sooner. And in America, we have all these, you know, we have chestnuts roasting on an open fire and all these uh, nut references in our culture, partially due to the popularity of the American chestnut and its die off, I, I guess. But I don't think I've ever had nuts pri- like as a primary source in my diet. And my great grandfather ate nuts and berries like only like he was like on some weird, crazy. Yeah. Like my grandfather talked about how his dad would only eat nuts and berries and just had this very extremely healthy diet that nobody has today. But also you have to imagine this is what, like the early 1900s. So I was ahead. There was, well, at that time though, there was no McDonald's there wasn't, you know, like eating nuts and berries wasn't probably as weird as it is today, like as a primary source of protein and, and, uh, you know, vitamin C and whatever else, but whatever, I'm going off on a tirade. Why don't you get back to, to your main points? Because I feel like I distracted us very far away from the conversation. Oh, that, that was, that's a, it's a cool story. Um, so you're right. Yeah. I think we probably used to eat more of these kind of wild fruits and nuts just because, they were more available and maybe all of the addictive, delicious, overly salted, overly sugared food that we have right now might not have been as readily available. So, you know, they're much more attractive to go out and just like eat what was growing near you. Yeah. To be honest with black walnut, when I first tasted the nut meat, I think the first one that I had, that was just kind of a wild old nut that was just sitting around in my backyard. I spat it out because it was such a powerful flavor kind of to me, it tasted like had almost like a gasoline sort of taste to it. And I was like, Oh my God, if this is what black walnut tastes like, I don't think I want it. And then I tried it. I think I tried one again later on, uh, that was a bit fresher and it was another wild one. And it still was like, so, so strong. I was like, I don't, I really don't think I like this. And I have a pretty strong, strong palate. So that was another reason why I sort of shied away and wasn't really interested in it. And then when I got to where I'm right now at the school where they're like, this is the species you're going to be working with for the next you know, two years. It's like, well, um, I, I don't know how I feel about that, but being able to try these sort of like improved uh, selections 
uh, at the farm, which is, you know, really what, what people, oftentimes these are ones, what the ones that people will plant some of these named cultivars. I've definitely found some more milder tasting ones that at this point, I think I prefer them over the English walnut or excuse me, the Persian walnut. Like I prefer the name Persian walnut over English walnut, but yeah, Juglans Regia, the one that everyone's tried and bakes with that one just sort of tastes completely bland and neutral to me right now. Black walnut has a really bold, like it's really hard to describe. It's a very complex flavor. It's, it's buttery because it's, you know, it's got fat in it, pro- savory, it's got protein, but it has a lot of like volatile notes of uh, sometimes I think it has a bit of like a cherry flavor to it, kind of a fruity floral overtone. And, you know, some of them of course are stronger than others and have some unpleasant notes for, for me, like they're almost too strong and a little bit too bitter or spicy even, but I'd say on the whole, they're all pretty, all the named cultivars that I've, I've tried mostly maybe with nine out of 10 have been very pleasant. And like I said, I've acquired a taste. And if you, if you're not a huge fan of eating them raw, um, because you find that flavor a little bit too strong, you know, if you roast them and you don't need to roast them for very long, you can roast them on like 300 degrees for maybe 10 minutes and then stir them up and roast them for another five minutes. That's probably all you need. And that mellows the flavor out and brings out the oils to the surface and just, it makes them more, a lot more palatable. But per, like I said, personally, now I, I like eating them raw, I like the flavor. And also I think, and science has, has shown, there's a lot of really interesting medicinal compounds in the, in the pellicle, which is like the coating, the brown coating around the kernel. That's potentially anti-cancer, antibacterial, and just has a lot of health benefits. So it's all those really strong flavors I know are probably nutritional compounds that are really good for me. So I, I tell myself that too, but I, I, yeah, I think everyone should try black walnuts. And if you, if they're a little bit too strong, you can, of course, like I said, just mellow them out a little bit. So maybe now's a good time to sort of talk about the Carpathian walnut tree. I discovered only today in the backyard of the property I'm going to be uh, stewarding soon. And I'll, I'll eventually- set up just real quick. So black walnut is, is considered a really tolerant species to the cold and the Juglans regia is, is thought to be kind of not tolerant to, to cold and only grows in more mild or Mediterranean climates. But there are certain types of walnuts, the, the Juglans regia that do grow in cold climates, but we don't know what, that much about them. So it was really cool to hear that you found one. Yeah, these uh, discoveries seem to keep happening. My grandfather, I guess, was really way more of a plant nerd than I ever knew, which is very cool to discover these days. And he planted a Carpathian or Persian or English walnut. I mean, they're all, they have many names, but I, I, your choice of name is Persian. And I'm, I'm interested to know why. I think if I was going to choose a name for this plant, which everyone likes or has their like preferred name for the plant they cultivate, you know, there's usually six names for a plant from every different culture. I feel like I would choose Carpathian. I feel like it sounds the best, but yeah, my grandfather planted a seemingly very cold hardy Carpathian walnut tree in his backyard potentially when he was my age and like over 75 years ago. And it had been for my entire life, it's been producing incredible, an incredible amount of nuts. 
we haven't done anything with them. I don't know if my grandfather ever tried processing them or if they just got eaten by squirrels, but I do remember throughout my entire childhood, this tree having just a, an immense amount of nuts covering the ground below it, which was probably more of like an annoyance to my grandparents. I imagine, you know, once life gets hectic, having a bunch of nuts covering the ground, either half shelled or full is probably, you know, you can't mow over it or whatever, but I should talk a little bit about the, the history of Carpathian walnuts. The reason why it has so many different names is that it's, you know, it's a walnut that's native to originally the Carpathian mountains in like Korea, but it was eventually brought through Persia and then into Europe, which is why it has the name English walnut in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The Carpathian walnut and the English walnut are the same to Regia, but they're is a wide variety of hardiness within them. So some people say that, you know, the Carpathian walnut is the colder or the more cold hardy version of the English walnut, but that's kind of silly because they really are exactly the same thing. It's just the diversity within the species. So in zone six, probably when my grandfather planted it, zone 6A, this walnut tree has been flourishing. Supposedly the the fruits, or sorry, the nuts have a a sweet taste and oily texture, supposedly. Do you recall if, if do the nuts themselves just drop on the ground without the hull or the fruit, or are they kind of in, still encased in the, the hull and fruit? From what I remember, they would, you know, they drop early. I'd see green fruits scattering the ground and they would still be in the hull. Okay. But I don't know what is preferable. So please do tell Ben Bishop. Well, I was just curious because that's one of the nice things about Juglans Regia versus Nigra is that um, at least maybe some of the cultivars, maybe not all of them, will actually you know open up. The fruit opens up and drops the nut the the without the fruit onto the ground, um, or you can pick it off off the tree that way, which is great. You don't have to haul it. As far as I know, they don't really have to haul a lot of the nuts that are in production in, in California. They just gather the the nuts themselves and the fruits either remain on the tree or kind of just drop off separate. But it might be the sort of thing that that was a cultivated trait that a certain percentage had. And then they bred that into the population because it's just easier to manage. You know, you don't have to deal. Uh, I'll, I'll say firsthand that dealing with the hulls can be kind of gross later in the season. They get kind of, they're black and they can, they can stain your hand and your hands and clothing. I and mean, some of them can get infested with maggots depending on where you live and the cultivar. So they're not that the fruits are not pleasant to deal with. So yeah, I was just curious to see if, if your tree drops the nuts free of the, the fruit or not. I guess I'll have to find out. I, I mean, I will know in a few months mm-hmm. my, at the, at the other property, I, you know, there used to be a hickory tree planted here and I, experienced many a hickory nut falling and being just attacked by squirrels. I guess that's like the next question I had for you is just, you know, as someone who now is going to be inheriting this Carpathian walnut tree and also a hardy pecan tree, how do I, you know, is there any defense from squirrels or is it just, I just let them go free and some years are better than others? Well, in my experience, the squirrels will be much more interested in your pecan tree. At the farm, the chestnuts probably get 
hit first and then the pecans and then the black walnuts last, maybe because they just have such a thick shell. So I would, I would focus your attention on, on the pecan for sure. And, and I've noticed too, when I used to have a pecan tree and, and grow the nuts that the, the squirrels were a problem. You kind of just need to be on it in terms of the nut drop. I would like, I could hear it in my, my backyard. I'd be working on my computer and I'd literally hear nuts dropping in like a wind gust. And I just walk outside and pick up which ones fell. And that, it's a little inefficient, of course, but I just didn't want to lose any to the squirrels. Other than that, yeah, there's not there's not too much you can do. That's like nature is doing its thing. I mean, they won't take all of them. And also they will plant the good pecan yeah. all over the place. So you'll have seedlings yeah. popping up in the following spring. You'll get many more nut trees for your negligence. I guess the next thing that we should just talk about only because I mentioned the pecan is that one nut tree for northern growers to consider is the hardy pecan tree or Caria ilionoensis. I have planted several of these and then in the same year recognized that my grandfather planted one over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and it is huge. However, it is not producing any nuts because it needs a pollinator. And although some of them are somewhat self-pollinating because they have male and female flowers on the same tree, this tree, it, you know, the timing is not is not right. I, I don't know. Hardy pecan trees have an incredible history in the U.S. They are, you know, like back in like the 1700s, there were nurseries in New York that produced them and all, like all of the founding fathers, including Tom Jefferson and Washington and Benjamin Franklin all planted them and we're all excited about planting them. And throughout our history since then in the U.S., they have been cultivated, but just usually in more of an excited hobbyist form. Just I assume when my grandfather planted them, not cultivated on a grand, grand scale in the north. So I was I was wondering why not. That's a really good question. They're really huge trees and they can take a while to to produce. They're more popular in you know, I've I've seen plantations in the south and parts of the Midwest too. I think they're like I said, I know less about pecan than I knew with black walnut, but I think there are, are cold tolerance issues as you go to more northern latitudes. And also, I mean, just in general, when it comes to cold tolerance with fruit and nut trees, like a tree might be able to survive a winter, but it could still experience some dieback, or maybe it doesn't experience dieback, but the flowers that come out in the spring, maybe there's a late spring frost. And so it kills the flowers and it doesn't produce a crop. Or again, pecans might be able to produce a crop of nuts over the course of the season, but then there aren't quite enough heat units in your climate to properly ripen them. So, you know, it'll start to grow a crop, but then before it fully ripens, it just kind of the winter comes and it, and the nuts are no longer viable. So I think that's the main limiting factor when it comes to more Northern pecan growing is just lack of cultivars that can survive with with the lower amount of heat units that are available there. It's sort of like people trying to produce almonds or apricots in, in the Northeast. Like it is possible to grow almonds and apricots in zone five in upstate New York, but more often than not, they'll get, you know, all of the blooms will get knocked out by a late spring frost. But actually in my area, we do, we definitely do have the heat units to produce them. We're like zone 6B slash 7 in an inland area where the 100 degree days are way too often. 
So we do have the heat units. I just need to find a pollinator for the tree that's that's on the on that land. But maybe uh, maybe we should segue sort of into the American chestnut just a little bit and talk about what we do know about it. I don't know too too much, but you know when my grandparents were my age or when my grand when my great grandmother was my age, maybe the American chestnut trees were just this like incredible perfect nut tree that was great for timber and nuts and grew to be these like incredible champions of the forest up until the point that a chestnut blight from Asia or like East Asia was introduced just like on a, you know, a boat that brought timber over. And then that blight killed just about every American chestnut in the United States, mostly in the South. And then still today there are American chestnuts that exist in the Northeast, like in Maine and in other places, just any random spore of this fungus could fly through the air and land on them and kill all the entire population. So it really, it really sucks. But there's been crossbreeding done with the American chestnut and Chinese chestnut cultivars to try to create a, basically the, the Chinese chestnuts don't have fruit that's very tasty, supposedly. I personally, you know, I say supposedly because I haven't tasted either I've just done research on the matter and the Chinese chestnuts were immune to this fungus, but American chestnuts were not. So there was crosses done to the point that we have trees that are 31 out of 32 parts American chestnut and one 32nd Chinese chestnut, which allows for the blight tolerance, but also creates really delicious fruit. And the blight is called Cirophonectria parasitica. And it was, it was introduced back in like the 1800s from East Asia. And it was East Asian chestnut trees that had that parasite, but they were, had built up an immunity. It was, you know, commercial logging that brought them in. And actually the first person who ever recognized that there was a problem was this guy at the Bronx Zoo. who was just like a forestry dude named Herman. And he works at the Bronx Zoo and noticed that the, the trees had been affected. But yeah, it was this like perfect tree and it you know, had, a, had evolved for like 40 million years and almost nearly disappeared from the continent within a century. They're you know, virtually extinct today. I, I think the disease was called like ink disease or something like that. And it started in like the early 1800s. But there are still American chestnuts in the US and there are breeding programs to sort of try to revitalize them, which is very exciting because I would like to to have chestnuts in a tasty, delicious, available form throughout all of our native forests again. Definitely. And and you're right. Like it, it was such an important species, like ecologically for the entire time of its evolution. It made up in some places, 25% of the entire hardwood forest, especially in the Eastern forests was American chestnut. It was just that species because it was backbone. So just think about how much, you know, animal life and bird life and insect life was lost because you had these, these massive trees that were doing a great ecological service just because of, you know, the importing of, of the Chinese chestnut. Uh, we, we lost, you know, a lot of them. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, there are a lot of very passionate people that are trying to bring back American chestnuts. I haven't actually tasted the, a pure American chestnut before. I think you know, from what I've heard, I mean, I think they, they taste pretty nice. I've tried the Ozark chinkapin before another type of American chestnut, but actually the, the Chinese chestnuts 
are also delicious too, I think. Um, and they've had, you know, a lot of domestication in, uh, in China and other parts of the world. So it's, it's kind of, I don't blame them for, for wanting to bring them into the U S to grow, but you know, they didn't necessarily know all about the different fungal spores that they could be importing. So now we're a little bit more careful with imports and exports. Before we move on, and I would like to pick your brain about the uh, the chestnut tree that you gifted me that you just mentioned, which is is very happy. I should mention it is it is growing. I'm very excited for my chickapin. But uh, I will. I, I wanted to also mention that the oldest, or okay, I've heard it's the oldest tree in the world alive. But at least one of the oldest trees in the world is growing in Sicily on the side of Mount Etna and it's called the hundred horse chestnut. So it should just be like, you know, keep it in your head that we talk about old trees. One of the oldest trees in the history of man is a chestnut tree growing on the side of an active volcano. It somehow survived this whole time. It's called the chestnut tree of 100 horses, Castane sativa. I, uh, I think Castane sativa and it's the oldest known chestnut tree in the world, probably 4,000 years old or more. I mean, it's particularly crazy because it's on the side of Mount Etna, which is one of the most active volcanoes in the world. I don't know. I think that we're making a big mistake in permaculture or in forest gardening practices and not implementing like the center of all of our forest systems as chestnut and other nut trees that can outlive us. We can, I don't, uh, one thing that I recently learned is that coppicing can extend the age of a tree's life. Is that true of nut trees or is that only true of like pears and, and other fruit trees? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, especially the European cultivars and European species, our American species haven't necessarily undergone that sort of selection process because we never had to select for re-sprouting capability. But in European cultures, like you mentioned, I think the, the tree you mentioned is in Italy. I mean, chestnut plays such an important role. I believe they also do some, traditionally do some coppicing uh, in the Mediterranean, coppicing and pollarding. And for those who aren't familiar, you're just basically cutting the tree strategically at certain points of its life to benefit from the re-sprouting effect. And you can sort of freshen up the, the tissue of a tree. So instead of having like a old tree that the, the wood can eventually start to rot and die, you're just constantly refreshing it uh, in, in a cycle. Um, and so, yeah, I believe, I believe you can do that with chestnut. I don't know how that affects the production the- or what have you. Yeah, that's a good point. But um, yeah, I believe that, you know, especially hazels are also really great re-sprouters. If you want to learn about chestnut culture, yeah, definitely study not just China, but also Mediterranean, so Spain and Italy. The last thing that I want to say is just specifically with this tree, to any of our listeners, just look up the chestnut tree of 100 horses. There are an incredible amount of resources that show you paintings from the 1700s and illustrations from the 1800s of this tree the fact that this tree can be photographed today by tourists and has been painted and made art of throughout the history of our civilization is incredible to me yeah i haven't actually heard of this tree before thanks for mentioning it it's 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 beautiful i just looked it up on my on google right now and yeah I'd, i'd much rather go and see something like this on a vacation than i mean the mona lisa would be cool to see but i mean this is this is even more spectacular and yeah i totally agree i think we need to be considering 
these long lived tree species. I mean, imagine a world where we get, you know, the majority of our calories from, from tree crops, you know, our, our carbohydrates or proteins or fats in a way that each year the roots just go deeper, the trees grow taller, they sequester more carbon, they support more wildlife. We're going to, we'd be a lot healthier for it too. So I, that's kind of what I fantasize about in the future, but we can start now by just, you know, planting these, these species everywhere we, we possibly can. Chestnuts until last year, I hadn't really had much experience cooking them, but I, I was under the impression that they were like other nuts for most of my life, but really the chestnuts are, are starchy for those who've never tried them before. They actually have the consistency of almost like a potato or sweet potato. The flavor, flavor is not that unlike like a sweet potato. It's hard to describe. It has, it has its own unique. It's almost like if you, if, if you mix a sweet potato with corn, like it almost has a corn flavor too, but they're, they're good. You can boil them up. You can roast them. You, you can make flour from them. You can make bread. They make a cake in Italy called a castagna cake, or I might have that name wrong, but yeah, there, you can use them anywhere that you'd use a, a starch basically. And, but the only thing is they chestnuts won't store very well. You have to kind of freeze them. Like they won't, they won't store in their, in their shell, they'll, they'll rot. And it left in the field or outside the, like I said, the animals love to eat them because literally you can just crack, you can bite into the, the shell with your teeth and it will pop open. You can rip it off. And then you have this kind of chewy, starchy carbohydrate basically. And you can eat it raw. Like I, I don't think they even taste half bad raw, They're very sweet, but a little bit mealy. So yeah, if you never tried them before, you can try to just check them out. You can order them online or, or you can maybe even find some in your area. Um, they sell them at farmer's markets uh, in some locations and even produce markets. If, if you're, if you're in a city or in a rural area that, that has Chinese chestnut production. And really, I think the U S could scale up its chestnut production quite a bit because a lot of these tree crops we're talking about can, can grow on land. That's not really suitable for other crops. Maybe it's uh, chestnuts like it dry. They need moisture, but they like it to be well-drained. So higher up on landscapes, they can grow on hillsides. Um, so there's a lot of area of land where we could be growing these, these important food crops. And the hardy pecans can grow in wet areas, which is an area that, you know, no, like wet meadows are not cultivated in the United States, but they could be mm-hmm. with hardy pecan trees. Yeah, absolutely. All these have their own little niches where, where they do, do best in. And so for, I would just say for people who, who want to grow some, some chestnuts, you can get grafted varieties, but what seems to work better, especially if you're in, you know, more, more Northern climate, it's better just to get seedlings from known cultivars named cultivars. There's something called delayed graft failure where the tree will produce for five years or so, but then just sort of die because some, some issue Almost like if you think of like when the body rejects like a trans organ transplant or something like that, I think it, obviously it's a whole different mechanism in trees, but it's that sort of thing where it'll work for a little while, but in certain cases your tree will die. So if you're not grafting, if you're just planting seedlings from good genetics, good, uh, good producing trees, then you're going to be safe from that, that issue. But that being said, there's, you know, at the, the farm I work at, there's grafted trees that are old and doing great. So I wouldn't worry too much about it if that's all you can find. Plant two or plant three. Yeah. Plant two or three. 
be aware that anytime that you make a graft, whether it's on nut trees or on fruit trees, even if the graft takes it, you know, there could be a period of two to five years where the graft seems like it's doing fine and it can still fail, mm -hmm. uh, which really sucks. <laughs> but hopefully that won't happen with any of my graphs. A nut tree that I wanted to talk about, Ben, and if you have anything to, to add, please do, is the Jinko maidenhair tree or the you know, Jinko biloba. The, the Jinko is like the, one of the oldest living tree species in the history of our earth it is older i mean i i think it's like one of the only survivors of trees like this group of trees that date back to before dinosaurs even existed on our planet which is insane that we can get this tree and plant it in our landscape and just you know people don't even know what it is but dinosaurs that were living 250 million years ago interacted with jinko trees some people call it like a living fossil for that reason anyways uh, jinko is is deciduous it's really like a relic from prehistoric times as i've already said but it was rediscovered in like the 1600s in japan yeah i think it was cultivated by chinese monks or like buddhists and they kind of brought it back into cultivation around that time but today, Jinko is just used as like an ornamental, mostly. People don't even recognize that it is a tree that is highly valued for edible nuts. It does have male and females. A female tree will produce nuts. Jinko is dioecious, which means basically that male and female flowers are on separate trees. And yeah, I, I personally have never had the fruits, but... I have watched many videos and read up on it quite a bit. And basically the, the fruits are about the size of like a cherry or maybe like a gooseberry. The fruits smell like blue cheese to me. Really? Yeah. They're very I, weird smelling. <laughs> they're, they're a pungent fruit. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, this is one tree that you will have to wait a period of time for the fruit to produce. It takes somewhere between 15 to 20 years, depending on, how old of a tree you acquire, you know, if it's a seedling or if somehow you acquire a five-year-old plant from a nursery or whatever. But after about 15 to 20 years, it'll start producing nuts and it'll just produce them heavily. The fruits are supposedly delicious and I'm very excited. I've planted one or two of these around my landscape. Mike, do you know how people use the actual nuts? I know, I know they've been used for like medicinal purposes for memory enhancing or or like a nootropic sort of sort of situation where you're thinning the blood and allowing it to go to your brain that's that makes your brain work better but it's also a blood thinner so you have to watch out but in your research have you found people using it for food and, and do you know how it's used so yeah i mean you're right in that they were frequently used in traditional chinese medicine i've encountered a few people talking about them just being edible and delicious so i imagine you just roast them or boil them after, you know, harvesting and removing the, the husks and shelling them to get like the actual, the nut out of the, the larger thing. In the permaculture community, lots of people have ranted and raved about them being really tasty. So I imagine just like everything, they can be eaten probably in small quantities, but to be honest with you, no, I haven't, I haven't done an incredible amount of research into the potential 
negative side effects or, you know, like if they're only used in traditional Chinese medicine versus consumed on a grand scale. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, I, I will look into that because I do have several of them planted. They're just, you know, they're such babies. They're in the back of the back of my mind. Well, it's possible when you cook them and roast them, it deactivates the medicinal compounds and any sort of risk of overconsumption and over blood thinning goes, goes away. But if, if that's the case, if you can just gather them and roast them, that's a great opportunity for people in urban environments to forage for nuts. Cause I mean, they're definitely going to be ginkgo biloba trees in a lot of cities that are just used, like you said, like an ornamental. And to go out in the fall when everyone's looking up at the golden yellow foliage and instead look down at the, the fruits on the ground that people are just walking over. You could probably uh, gather them up and, uh, and make a little, little taste test, or you could probably get quite a few, honestly. It's the, this is more of just a taxonomical, the taxonomical nerd in me that it's the only member, the only species in the genus. So it kind of stands alone. There's just like only all the others have gone extinct. I don't know. I think there were other ginkgo species, but not anymore. It's just, it's standing alone. It's representing the the clan. Yeah. It survived uh, all of the, it must've been the least tasty of all of the species in, in the, in the clan because uh, all the dinosaurs ate the other ones. No, but uh, as to what you were saying before about cooking them, I've seen just on like Instagram or Facebook, and the various plant nerd community groups I'm a part of people just in one case, like in a saucepan, like adding water of about like a half an inch or, or more like, you know, covering the nuts with water and then just adding like sea salt and boiling it. And then just, uh, you know, eating them like warm, just straight saying they were amazing. So your observation is probably right that they were, you know, used in traditional Chinese medicine, when they were not cooked. And then now we Westerners are just like, this thing tastes good. But <laughs> I bet they either way, probably cooked them up too. Actually, I'm going to make an addendum to what I said before. I just confirmed it. It's not only the only species in the genus and not only the only genus in the, let's see if I get this right. The only genus in the family, but it's the only family in the order. So <laughs> there's like an order of the Ginkoles and it's the ginkgo biloba is the only species in that entire order of plants that's still alive. Wow. So yeah, it must, the best of them must've been tastier. <laughs> Who knows? But that's cool. I'm going to try to harvest them this year. If I, if I see any. I'm very excited myself. And I think it is called also interesting to sort of delve into the plants that are frequently planted in landscapes as an ornamental, but are entirely overlooked. So we talked a little bit about pecan and like I said, I, I, I have some experience, but not a ton, but that's definitely another tree that I'll close the pecan section by saying that it's probably one of my favorite tasting nuts. You can just crack them open, eat them raw. Those of you who haven't tried that before, it's, you know, they're, they're great. They taste excellent fresh and, you know, usually you have to dry them before you crack open to make them easier to, to shell. But in either case, I think that's a, a great tree to plant. Again, it's a very large tree. Uh, it's going to live a long time and just, it's going to rain down, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds of nuts over the course of its life. You want to, you can get grafted, grafted pecan trees are usually the way, the way to go. You want to make sure that that's scab resistant, that you're not having a uh, pecan scab in your area. And, or if, if it is an issue, try to find cultivars that are, are scab resistant. So that's all I'll say about 
pecan because I don't know too much. My favorite cultivars are Posey and Kanza. Very cool. Should we touch on hazelnuts? Please do. I don't have a ton of experience growing the Europeans. I've grown the Americans a little bit. Essentially, the, the long and short of it is you have the two, there are mul- many species, but the two main ones to be concerned with is the American, the, the native hazelnut that, that, that we have here, which is very, very hardy. You can, you can grow American hazelnuts as cold as you can get it, like even up in Fairbanks. You might be able to grow some some American hazelnuts, depending on the cultivar, Fairbanks, Alaska. <laughs> in general, you know, it's zones four to nine. You can grow uh, safely grow American hazelnuts. The pro- and it's a multi-stem shrub. It, it doesn't grow too tall, very hardy, produces nuts. Great. The only issue is the nuts themselves are not typically not very large. They tend to stick to their Involucre, involucre, and I can never know how to say it, but basically, like the hull that surrounds it, they don't drop free of that. So there are some challenges to like commercial scale adoption, but they're great for for the homesteader. But you want to make sure you find some uh, cultivars that produce you know larger size nuts if that's important to you, Uh, and you're going to need multiple individuals to get pollination to do the cross pollination. And then, so the other species is the uh, European hazelnut, which is not a multi-stem shrub or multi-stem tree. It's, it's a single stem. So it's got a, more of a classic tree shape, grows a bit taller, you know, maybe around 15 feet or so, and produces larger nuts, bigger crops. It's, it's undergone more cultivation over the years. But the big problem is you know, we've talked about disease already a lot in this, this episode, but the big problem is that it, if you bring it over to the U.S., we have Eastern filbert, filbert blight. Filbert's another name for hazelnuts. And so this is a pathogen that will kill the tree after a certain amount of time or just reduce the yields pretty consequently. So it's a big issue to the adoption. Uh, if it weren't for that, we could, be, we could be growing, you know, lots and lots of European hazelnuts all over the U.S., so similar to chestnut, we're doing, the U.S. is doing a lot of breeding at universities like Rutgers and OSU, Oregon State, to basically try to get either the genetics of the big, big nut producing Europeans into the Americans to improve the size of the American hazelnut nut size, uh, or the other way around, where you're trying to get the resistance, the genes for resistance from the American hazelnuts into the the European varieties so that they can survive and actually survive long enough to produce, you know, a lot of crops over the years. So there still needs to be more breeding work done, but there are cultivars. uh, There's cultivars of American that produce large hazelnuts. Great. And there's cultivars of European that are somewhat resistant to the the Eastern filbert blight. So we're, we're making progress. And so there's no reason why people can't start growing, especially if you live in areas where I don't know exactly where Eastern filbert blight is not a big issue, but if, if you don't have it in your region, you could certainly try growing the pure Europeans, but if otherwise I would stick to hybrids that are a little bit harder to find, but you can certainly find hybrid hazelnuts on, on nurseries online. But yeah, the hazelnuts, they, they are in a shell and you need to, to shell them after uh, harvesting and you can roast them you can preserve them that way. They're, yeah, they're, they're tasty. They kind of have like a floral fruity taste to them. I think, yeah, I've only grown the Americans, but I think they're a very oily, oil rich nut, very fatty nut. You can even compress it into hazelnut oil. 
Um, you can some stores, grocery stores are selling hazelnut oil now, which is really cool. And it's been even suggested as an alternative to soy, soy, soy oil production. So instead of destructive annual agriculture, we could be having fields and you know acres and acres of of hazelnuts growing that can be pressed for oil, and the carbon sequestration would be much much higher in, in that sort of environment than a typical soybean plantation. Uh, uh, do you like hazelnuts? So I don't have too much to say about hazelnuts, but I would like to talk about the yellowhorn nut tree or Xanthoceras orbifolia which is another tree that kind of entered cultivation around the 1800s, I believe originally in Eastern Europe or Russia, and perhaps in Germany. Yellowhorn also has been called shiny leaf yellowhorn or the hyacinth shrub, popcorn shrub, or even the northern macadamia, because it's been rumored that the nuts resemble macadamia nuts to some degree or taste somewhat like them. They, they produce abundantly. And what's really, really cool about them is that you can plant a yellowhorn nut tree in the north in zones four through seven and have it start producing nuts for you after only two or three years of planting it, which is very, very different than most nut trees that you'll plant, as we've already talked about. So if you get a two-year-old tree, it could be producing nuts a year after you put it in the ground, depending on if you plant it dormant or whatever. But yeah, so it produces abundantly. It's very slow growing and long lived, but it does produce nuts early. And once established, it'll produce also, it also produces edible leaves and, and it produces edible flowers. The seeds are also pressed for oil and, you know, eaten by human the seeds are the nuts and we eat them they can also be used for like animal fodder if you raise pigs for example but on like a hobbyist scale it's just apparently a very delicious alternative to other nut trees it was originally native to like northern china and northeast korea it kind of resembles a sumac which is true of lots of very interesting plants like Tunisinensis also looks like sumac. So don't let your, I don't know, local kid who mows your lawn rip it out for you. It is interesting how it is only cold hardy to zones four through seven because it that means it really is kind of a nut tree for northern growers. And it can handle full sun, but it likes some light shade in a somewhat moist soil. But something to consider is that it has a really large, deep tap root, which it's an incredible trait for the plant. So that means essentially once it's established after a year or two, it'll tolerate just about any drought. Anything that has a really long taproot, you can plant it somewhere that it gets really, really dry and they'll do just fine because that taproot is sucking up all of the moisture from deep, deep, deep in the soil. And yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a very exciting tree. I have been trying to source it for a little bit and I know that Edgewood Nursery carries it up in Portland. I stupidly did not did not pick up one when I was up there. It's cool to think about this tree, you know, stacking uses. It has edible leaves. It has edible flowers. The nuts are edible. And the nuts also already have a flavor that we're aware of as consumers. Most people have had a macadamia nut at least once or, you know, some people have had macadamia nuts before and think of them as a sort of like prized nut. 
And look at that. We can plant it in our backyard in New England and eat it and enjoy it. Mike, you're blowing my mind. I, I don't know anything about Yellowhorn, but I'm looking up some photos now and, and listening to what you said. I really want to try growing it, especially because you said it produces so early and it's, it's life. Yeah, I really wonder. I mean, you said it tastes like macadamia nuts, which is amazing because I love macadamia nuts. And it looks like they produce pretty prolifically as well. So, and especially I like what you said about the edible leaves and flowers too. It is certainly an overlooked um, shrub or tree that needs a lot more attention. I overlooked it. I uh, literally passed right over it when visiting Aaron Parker's Edgewood Nursery property and was just like, oh, I remember, I remember that, but I don't think I need it right now. And I feel so stupid. I should have gotten some because they are somewhat hard to source. I will say it's not the easiest tree to come by, makes but it fun. yeah, it, it makes it even more exciting when you do find one, I guess. And I mean, my sister has macadamia nut trees that are the size of a, you know, what we would imagine a chestnut tree in the Northeast being at or a pecan tree at its like largest size where it's dropping the most amount of nuts, you know, it's several, it's 50 feet tall or, or more. And it's just raining nuts down. But this tree you can think of as a small friend in your landscape that is going to produce for you potentially as much as what you'd get from a really established nut tree, because also when it's like smaller like that and the, the way that the, the husks sort of like open up, you can just take the nuts right from the tree rather than having them fall on your roof or fall into your landscape and get eaten by squirrels or whatever. So I think that's something also to sort of consider for anyone who's listening to this podcast is that nut trees are badass, but where you put them in your landscape is important. You certainly don't want to put them in a place that is going to be potentially you know, it's, it's the same idea as you don't want to plant a mulberry tree over your parking pad. You don't want mulberries and you probably don't want heavy nuts falling on your Tesla or on your Toyota, whatever. That's not ideal. Be aware of where you plant them and be aware that it may take a long time for them to start fruiting. But there are certain alternatives like Ben and I have mentioned and you know, specifically with this yellowhorn nut tree it will start producing for you kind of more similarly to the way that fruit trees or fruiting shrubs start producing for you. So it has a lot more of an interesting, I don't know, function in forest garden landscapes in that way. Do you know if it's uh, particularly invasive or aggressive or is it keep to itself? So it's funny you bring that up because one thing I was going to say is that maybe part of the reason why this tree is not cultivated more often is that Americans are so afraid of anything that isn't native and in landscape design frequently people are only making native landscapes these days after learning from the mistakes of people in the past who have planted just one tree that they didn't realize was so prolifically invasive after a certain you know, like, let's say it's like it grows to be 50 years old and then suddenly it's everywhere. But no, I, I don't think that it, it has any red flags popping up. I mean, at least when we talk about the plants that we're most interested in, like if we were going to talk about Fuki or Oenanthe, uh, <laughs> it is nowhere, nowhere close to the invasive category. 
as far as I know. I found a, a site that with a little bit of information on here. It says it's pretty slow growing, less than 12 inches a year. So yeah, that's, that's pretty manageable. It's not going to get out of hand. It also says it can, it can be used to make biodiesel, which is really interesting. It's like a 800 gallons of oil per acre if you, if you press it, like you were saying. It's interesting how it is a very slow growing tree, but also produces early. Maybe it's, it pours all of its energy into the fruit and the nut production instead of vegetative growth. Maybe. I mean, even then the, the leaves are edible, which, you know, is, I don't know how tasty they are, but that could vary depending on, I mean, you know, like we, we talked about eating, eating mulberries and the edible mulberries that you sourced versus just the random ornamental mulberry that's planted uh, on my property. What, you know, who knows, but it it is a slow growing tree that produces some tasty nuts in a really short period of time is basically the thing to take home. Yeah. I think a lot of, you're going to be introducing that to a lot of people who uh, haven't heard of Yellowhorn people like myself. So yeah. Thanks for the introduction to it. It seems like a fascinating species. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's just, I mean, the list could go on and on. We could just keep talking about it, but like, there's just a couple honorable mentions, uh, I'll say, as we're starting to wind down here. Nether nut tree species. So I tried my first hickory nut for the first time this year. I mean, the squirrels were just like going at it at this one hickory tree at my school campus, actually. I think it's a, there's a shell bark and a shag bark type. And I think this was a shag bark hickory and and yeah there was just like bits of shell all over the place from the squirrels that just were annihilating it because they smell something in the inside the nuts and of course the kernel on the inside is hard to get to but i cracked one with my boot and scraped out some of the kernel and man it was tasty it kind of tasted like pecan but sweeter like almost had like this maple syrup flavor to it. So it had the richness, fattiness of the nut, but then it had this extra sugar content that was so, so nice. But I think the issue facing hickory is it takes a really long time for the trees to produce a crop. And then when you you do get a crop, it's not very amenable to easy crack out. You, You know, you crack open the nuts and you know, it's hard to like dig out the individual pieces. It doesn't just come out in a big chunk, like, you know, a walnut or a pecan wood. I think that's one of those foods that's worth foraging for. And if you really love it, try growing it in your landscape. But again, it's like one of those trees that you're planting for the future. It might take like 20 years to get a crop from it. So don't, don't hold your breath. Yeah. So I grew up with a shagbark hickory on my like parking pad area. And it would just drop hickory nuts profusely all late late summer through the fall and the nuts i you know like you you mentioned that it was hard to extract them from the shell frequently what would happen is that they would drop and already be sort of brown and accessible and sometimes it was really hard to get to them but other times you could just pry it open with not very much work at all and just have the inner nut from the from the shell or from the hull and there's a few different types of hickories that were like that are on the east coast. I know there's there's shagbark, which is probably the most common, and then there's like pig nut and bitter nut. I don't know which ones were the most edible. Like I said, I never actually tried eating them, and I'm regretting that now because having a hickory tree that was very 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 tall, dropping these nuts, it was an annoyance to us only because we were just stupid Americans at the time. But today, 
I would certainly try to, you know, I wouldn't even have to forage for them. I would just have to process them and mm -hmm. use them in, uh, you know, my culinary efforts. And I'm definitely regretting not being more aware when I was, I don't know, 14 and my parents cut that tree down. Uh, yeah, I think we all are, are kind of plant blind or food blind sometimes to certain species. And then they look back and be like, well, man, I wish I used that, that tree more or that plant more because there was plenty of it. Yeah. A couple other honorable mentions. I mean, the pine nuts are, you know, incredible, long lived, huge trees. Pinus edulis is a really great species for the edible nuts and this Pinus coriana, I think uh, the, the Korean nut pine, which is the more common when you buy pine nuts in the store, that those are the kind that you're, you're going to be able to grow. You got to check the hardiness level because I think that the Korean nut, the pine nuts are pretty hardy and some of the other stone, stone pine nuts can, can be grown in colder climates. But I think the, the pinion pine, which I mentioned is more of like a Western warmer, warmer climate. But I mean, you know, in terms of production at maturity, like you're getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of, of, uh, of pine nuts. And I've never had to harvest or, or process them before. There might be a little bit of, of work that goes into it, but man, really healthy, healthy food from trees that could live centuries. It's just, it's exciting to, to think about shifting more of our food consumption and cooking and culture towards, towards these tree crops. And we haven't even discussed acorns, which there's a whole culture to process acorns, to leach them out and make flour and bake with them or uh, cook with them in, in other ways, which, you know, there it's not going to be the same as bread that you make using wheat flour, but there's combinations where you can use half and half and get something that's really healthy and locally grown, but still has some of the same characteristics of, of uh, regular bread. And there are people who are working on breeding low tannin acorns that are going to, that won't require leaching at all. Uh, there's a tree researcher, Eliza Greenman, that's working on uh, propagating the lint white oak, which is a historically noted low tannin acorn. And I think there's maybe a couple other varieties out there that have low tannins that are great for, for consuming. But even if you have regular acorns, it's like, it's not that hard to leach out the tannins and which are kind of bitter, try them out and start consuming them in your diet. Talk about just like an easy, abundant source of food. Well, it might not be that hard to leach out the tannins, but it definitely is time consuming is one thing to mention. And also the reason why you're leaching out the tannins is they actually are really bad for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your oak trees are, are dropping one. I mean, it's important to plant oak trees in your landscape for this reason to produce acorns, not only for you, but for every, for every other mammal around you. But the uh, tannins in those acorns require basically several washings or strainings of the tannins, which said that Native Americans would, and this is, you know, this is all hearsay, but it said that Native Americans would essentially put the acorns into some sort of bag inside of a larger system in a river and the river would wash the tannins out and they would leave them for, you know, they would leave them in that situation for weeks, if not months, and then go back to harvest them. And in the modern era, there's a lot more quicker ways to filter out the tannins, but it still is very, very time intensive to do that. Yeah, that's, I, I'd heard that as well. And there's a friend of mine who was, wants to get into the acorn flower business. And he was saying that you could get away with just boiling with enough water. You just 
boil the acorns for, I don't know how long it would be. I'd assume a couple hours and that can leach out the majority of the tannins. I haven't confirmed that, but you're right. I think there are some other strategies to shorten it up, but if you do it in a large enough batch and you're preserving it somehow, I think it could still be worth, worth our time to, to do. And, and if we start to really work on the low tannin acorns then we don't even have to worry about that at all. Uh, there still might be like the lint white oak doesn't have any, has basically has zero perceivable tannins. Cause my understanding is there's different types and shapes of tannins that some of them can, some of them we have receptors for in our tongue that we tasted as being bitter and then other shapes and sizes of the tannic acids escape our tongue receptors. So we, when you taste it, it's like, it tastes like a chestnut, like a sweet chestnut with no, no bitterness at all. But yeah, you still want to make sure that it's tested to not have other types of tannins that we can't taste. And then those build up if we eat a lot of those types of acorns, which probably would have some health effects. So yeah, that's a whole different culture. If people are interested, there's a lot of information out there about acorns for human food, but there needs to be a lot more information. And there's probably some nut trees that we left out today. And maybe we'll have to do a part two at some point. Maybe we'll bring your your brother-in-law on again, and he can t- t- talk to us about macadamias or some of the other tropical nut species. That's a good point that we really did mostly focus on temperate nuts, mm-hmm. but it is also important to realize that it is temperate nut species that are also the most overlooked and perhaps nut species in general that need to be most honed in on throughout our society, whether or not it's in agriculture as just this resource that is bountiful and you know, what, what better way to prepare people and humans that we haven't even met yet and never will for the ever-changing world that we've created for them. I love that. I think that's a good good note to end on. Yeah, agreed. Well, everyone, thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode. Hope you, hope you learned something. We will see you again on the next episode. So until then, I hope you're doing well and you're able to try out some of these, these nuts that we talked about and start growing. Plant more nut trees, everyone. Find your local nut farmer. <laughs>